We're, uh, we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke here during uh, this Advent season. Uh, we're actually, the, the scripture in your bulletin is, is not correct. Uh, that's my error. Luke chapter 22 is where we're at. Luke 22, verses 21 through 38. Luke 22, 21 through 38. If, uh, if you are able, if you will uh, rise with me and stand for the reading of, his, of God's word. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers." But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your croak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, as we enter this time of focusing on your word here in the Gospel of Luke, we pray that uh, as your Holy Spirit is with us, during this Advent season, that you will move on our hearts with your word, that indeed, because we have been here, we will not be the same people who leave. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I uh, was preparing for this sermon, I recalled a few years back when my wife and I had the privilege of, of taking a cruise. We found out uh, during that cruise that we aren't cruise people. So it was our first and last. But on that trip, we did get to visit uh, Key West. And we walked by the home of uh, Ernest Hemingway. How many of you have ever been there? It's really, it's really quite an interesting place. You know, it's, he was the famous and best-selling writer and who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Most of you have probably uh, read something written by him in your, in your school years. He was also well known for his uh, adventurous spirit, but also, sadly, he was famous for his amoral lifestyle. And he ended his career 
as an alcoholic and committed suicide at the age of 62. His was a very tragic ending to a famous life. Or consider someone else, Kurt Cobain. He was a famous rock singer, songwriter, musician, best known as the lead singer and guitarist of the band Nirvana. He sold over 50 million albums worldwide, and during the last years of his life, Cobain struggled with heroin addiction and depression. And in 1994, Cobain was found dead at his home in Seattle. He had committed suicide by a self-inflicted shotgun wound to the head. The list seems endless. Robin Williams, Marilyn Monroe, famous people who have come to this same tragic kind of end. A seeming successful life, yet it ends in utter hopelessness and failure. So while this Christmas season is supposed to be about the joy of Jesus coming and the hope that is engendered in us, for many, it creates just the opposite. Many experience deep depression, and uh, there is even increased suicide rates during this period of time. In America today, it is estimated that there is one attempted suicide every minute of every day. What happens to us to make us lose all purpose and hope? Is it a sense of failure? For many, that is indeed the reality. So many seem to find success in their chosen fields on worldly levels, yet their life ends in shame and failure. Everybody fails. People fail in school. People fail at business. People fail in marriage, fail in parenting, fail in their careers, and people fail the Lord. Everybody fails. The question isn't how bad the failure is. The question is, how good is your response to the failure? See, failure isn't the end. The issue is how we deal with failure. As hard as it is to admit, you and I and every one of us have all failed and experienced a sense of hopelessness in the midst of our failures. So if you uh, like to keep notes, let me give you point one on your outline there in the middle of your bulletin. Simon Peter and Judas Iscariot both failed. But their response to the failure makes all the difference in the world. See, both men failed Christ. Peter by denying him, Judas by betraying him. Judas is completely overwhelmed with regret and despair to the point that he commits suicide, like Hemingway and Covain and so many others. Peter, on the other hand, seems to get past his failure and by God's grace and empowerment becomes one of the most important leaders of the early church. So what's the difference? We get some important keys to that in this text Keys that are vital for us during this season as we continue to seek the Lord's revival and revitalization here at Parkway. Because that is the experience of many of us here today at Parkway. But let's, uh, let's get to the context here and set the stage for the message this morning. You see, this scene is just filled with irony. As Jesus faces his death and 
Judas is out engaging in betrayal, the disciples worry about their status. Which one of them is the greatest? What a horrible picture this paints of the early disciples, don't you think? This dispute among the disciples is really quite important, though. It will impact how they treat one another. Will it be with love and honor and kindness, or will it be selfishly seeking after their personal ambition? And this will also impact the rest of the community of the early church. See, Jesus' response is absolutely foundational. Disciples are to be different from the world in the way they exercise their roles. Leaders in Christ's day, much like they are today, wielded power and authority, believing that their positions gave them the right to direct and coerce others in the actions they desired. But Jesus' approach to leadership is the exact opposite, isn't it? Leadership isn't about attaining a position that allows a person to exercise authority with one's own interests in mind. Leadership is a responsibility and the trust to exercise one's skills and energies to serve those who are being led. In those cultures, as Jesus describes here, rulers and kings are seen as patrons or benefactors. The people view their rulers, those who lord it over them, as the ones to whom they owe something significant, even their own lives. Jesus calls for leadership that is the exact opposite. Leading for Jesus means service, not power. There is no place for an elitist attitude in the church, is Jesus' message here. There is no place for someone who thinks they are owed something by the people they lead. And that's, by the way, point number two. There is no place for someone who thinks they are owed something by the people they lead. I think this is one of the hardest lessons that pastors and elders and other leaders in the church have to learn. Especially when you are hurt by the criticisms of others. It's been a lesson that I've had to learn over and over again and It's one that I've needed to help others work through. See, Jesus explains this further with a question. Who is greater in the eyes of the world, the one who is served at the table or the servant who delivers the meal? Well, the clear answer here is it's better to be the master, right? Or uh, as the saying goes, it's better to be the lead dog, the view is much better. But Jesus has been among them as the one who serves. And just like Jesus' ministry, it's better to be a servant than be served. See, Jesus never answers the disciples' question. Why? Because their comparison to one another is fundamentally flawed. They, much like us, are consumed with such things as, you know, that we're often consumed with. As, uh, as I'd like to refer to them as the five P's, which are uh, the next point on your outline there, the five P's. Position. I don't know about you, but in my fleshly heart of hearts, I too want to be seen as one who has succeeded, who has risen to the highest position. And we all, in our hearts, want that. The next one is power. 
Don't we all want to be the ones who are in control, who tell others what to do, the one to whom allegiance is owed? The next one is possessions. And again, in our heart of hearts, when we are honest with ourselves, we too want the the newest, the best. We start to think that it's almost un-American and in some circles, unchristian, not to want the most expensive, the biggest, the best. The next one is like it, it's prosperity. We begin to see ourselves as failures if we're not always striving to have more and more. The next one is popularity. To be seen by those around us, if not by our own city or our nation, or our world as someone who who mattered. We want to live our best lives now, don't we? We think we have it all figured out as we climb to what we perceive as the top. How can we not? Some of us have been taught that at home, or at school, maybe even at church, how can we not be working to achieve and attain the absolute best place? And the most and best stuff, the biggest home, the nicest car, the finest clothes. Isn't this what life is all about? But Jesus says if you want to be a leader, you must be a servant like Him. If you want to be first, you must be willing to be a slave like Him. See, Many who were following Jesus to Jerusalem thought they were going on a victory march for the crowning of the Messiah. And they wanted to be there when He claimed His throne. They wanted to bask in His reflected glory and grab a share of the prize for themselves. That's why they were arguing over this. See, in Peter's mind, the Messiah is one who comes in strength and power, the one who will defeat the evil powers of the world. In Peter's mind, the Messiah would be all-powerful, And as a follower of Jesus, Peter expects to be part of a glorious battle. Suffering and death? Well, that wasn't in the equation for Peter. And it's rarely in our equation. See, Jesus shows us what it means to live a life filled with radical commitment. Jesus suffered for people who rejected Him. Jesus gave His life. He died on the cross for a people who denied ever knowing Him. As He calls us to leadership in certain areas of our life, and every one of us has leadership roles in our lives, it's always as a servant leader. It's leadership from the bottom. Leadership means truly serving. It means honoring others. It means doing the menial and tedious in our desire to serve others. And this is the next point on your outline. Servant leadership begins by recognizing that there is no special elitist qualifications. What it means to be a servant of Christ is to promote the gospel by word and by example. The gospel of the crucified Messiah, the greatest servant and the greatest slave. True servant leadership means a commitment to regular faithful prayer and diligent study of God's Word. Servant leaders do not see themselves winning popularity contests. Not even within the church. 
See, as we see clearly in Jesus' response to those bickering disciples, one upmanship among those redeemed by a crucified Messiah is repulsive. It is the sign of a sick and destructive church, not a healthy and revitalized church. Christian leadership means living in life in light of the cross because we follow a crucified Messiah. Until the end of this age, we will take up our cross. That is, we will die to our self-interests every day as we follow Jesus. And so the next point is this. Leadership that despises suffering denies the faith. There's another important message for us here, and it's also the next point. True servant leadership recognizes our own weaknesses and failures. We see this in Peter, don't we? After the Last Supper, after Judas has left to betray the Lord to his enemies, after the disciples have argued over who is the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, it's at this point he looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. In uh, plain words, Jesus is letting Peter know, I have given Satan permission to sift you as wheat. It means to separate. Farmers use the sift, uh, to sift grain to separate the wheat from the chaff. Peter, in other words, you're going to fail me. Satan has asked to shake you up. His plans are to use your failure to drag you away from me, to pull you down so deep into discouragement and low in despair that you never come out. That's Satan's hope for each and every one of us. He wants to shake us up, to use your failures and mine, and maybe even some of our own worldly but empty successes, to drag us so low that we give in and we give up. See, part of what Peter learned from this is in his first letter. In Peter 1, verse, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, he writes, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. See, the testing of your faith is really quite precious to the Lord. Because it's through testing and even failure that your faith is purified and you bring Him praise, honor, and glory. So do you get up after your failure and keep going? Or do you give up? and turn back. See, Satan wants you and I to give up. Satan wants Parkway to give up after all of our failures, to act like Judas and betray him. The Lord intends for times of failure and shame and emptiness to teach us to keep persevering, keep believing, even when we fail. So how about you? How do you respond when you fail? 
How do you respond when you feel empty? Will you allow Satan to use your failures, your shame, and your emptiness to keep you wallowing in hopelessness? Or will you keep on trusting Jesus? Keep on drawing near to him? And that's the next point on your outline. And I think it's the uh, big overriding theme of our passage this morning. We aren't finished when we fail. We're finished when we allow our failures to cause us to give up rather than persist. There's another important aspect to this that we see in Jesus' words to Peter. And I, uh, I find it very encouraging that Peter's failure doesn't cause Jesus to write him off. Do you see that here? Here's how I would summarize what Jesus has to say. Peter, you will fail me, but I'm not giving up on you. In fact, Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me. Here's another way of uh, seeing this. Peter, I know you're going to fail me by denying me, but I'm asking the Father to strengthen you so that your faith in me will not end up totally ruined. See, Peter will fail. But he won't end up a failure because Jesus is praying for him. And it's not if, do you see that? But when you have returned to me. In effect, Jesus is telling him and us, you'll get past your failure. In fact, it'll be through this failure that you will return to me a different person. A humbled person. A person who understands that failure teaches you to depend more on me, on my Holy Spirit. See, Peter's failure ultimately draws him closer to Jesus. It has shown him his weakness. It taught him to depend more on Jesus and the Holy Spirit than on himself. So the next point is this. That's what Jesus wants your failures to do for you. To draw you closer to him, to make you more dependent on him. See, our, uh, our natural inclination when we fail is to run from the Lord and to stop depending on him. We quit praying, we quit trying, we quit trusting him, we quit really serving. And instead, we start to make things all about ourselves. How can we come back to him when we failed him so badly? Why would he want us back when we've made such a mess? See, the foundational principle is that Jesus can take even your failures and use them to draw you closer to him. That doesn't mean Peter's failures didn't matter. Denying the Lord was wrong. It was horribly sinful and cowardly. But the grace of God is much, much greater than his failures or ours. And his prayer for us is that our failures will drive us to him just as they were the prayers for Peter. See, Jesus is never surprised by our sinfulness and our failures. He knows you and I perfectly, yet He still intercedes for you and for me. Do you hear His prayer for you in the midst of your failure? Will you allow Him to use your failure to draw you into a greater dependence on Him? Again, you see, a person isn't finished when he fails. A person is finished 
when he gives up. One, uh, one more word about this, and it comes from the end of verse 32. Jesus says, when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. See, he calls Peter, and he calls us, knowing full well our failures into servant leader roles to help others who fail. Jesus commands Peter to strengthen, to encourage the other disciples after he has gotten past his own failures. See, when you've blown it, who will encourage you more? Somebody shaking their head saying, I can't believe you did that. Or somebody with the eyes of mercy who says, I've been where you are. I know how you feel. Let me help you get past this. This is what Jesus calls Peter to do. In effect, he's saying, your brothers will also fail me. But after you get past your failing, help them get past theirs too. Stand in the gap for them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Tell them of your failures and how the Lord used those failures to draw you to Himself so that you might receive more grace and mercy and greater strength for the journey. The journey of hope in Jesus Christ. It's people who failed. People who've suffered who are more merciful and gracious to others who struggle with sin and failures. So how about you? Do you find yourselves denying your own failures and sins and being critical of the failures and sins of others? Or have you allowed your sins and failures to drive you to deeper dependency on the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ and now find yourself filled with mercy and grace toward others who have similar struggles? Where have you failed? Where is the Lord calling you to show kindness and mercy to someone who has failed just like you? Where is the Lord calling you to be a servant leader, acting with compassion and grace, extending the mercies of the Lord to others in the midst of their failures? See, in your brokenness, persevere in Christ, that you might live out your radical calling to extend the gospel of grace and mercy to others. To live out our vision at Parkway of loving people to real life in Jesus. How about you? Will you reach out to them? Judas had a failure's heart. Peter had a failure of nerve. And they were both visibly hurt by their failure. You know, some years back, I was counseling a young man in the congregation where I was serving. He spoke to me about how he had failed his family how he had failed himself, how he had failed the Lord. He spoke to me of the depths of his sin. And it was pretty horrid, and I think he was trying to shock me. But after some time of listening and counseling, I asked him a simple question. Will you be like Peter? Or will you be like Judas? Will you pick yourself up and allow the Holy Spirit to use your sin, your failure, and your corruption to teach you endurance? so that you might be mature, drawing you into a closer dependent relationship on Him? And will you allow Him to use you as a servant in the lives of others? Will you now cling to Jesus? Or will you betray Him? How about you? What will you do with your failure? 
How is God calling you to be a servant leader, ministering the grace and mercy of God into the lives of others? If you haven't discovered that calling to minister, I'd certainly love to talk to you about it. You know, uh, as I was uh, writing this sermon, I was reminded of Thomas Edison. He invented the microphone, the phonograph, the incandescent light, the storage battery, talking movies, and more than 1,000 other things. It was uh, December 1914. He'd been working for 10 years on a storage battery, which uh, at that point had really strained his finances. And uh, this particular evening, a spontaneous combustion had broken out And within minutes, all the packing compounds and other flammable stuff were in flames. Fire companies from eight surrounding towns arrived, but the heat was so intense and the water pressure so low that the attempt to douse the flames completely failed. Everything was destroyed. All his assets going up in a whoosh. And although the uh, damage exceeded $2 million, the buildings were only insured for $238,000 because uh, they were made of concrete and they were thought to be fireproof. Now, uh, the inventor's 24-year-old son, Charles, was searching frantically for his dad. And he finally found him, calmly watching the fire, his face glowing in the reflection, his white hair blowing in the wind as he writes about it. He says, uh, my heart ached for him. He was 67, no longer a young man, and everything was going up in flames. When he saw me, he shouted, Charles, where's your mother? When I told him I didn't know, he said, go find her, bring her here. She'll never see anything like this as long as she lives. The next morning, Edison looked at the ruins and said, there is great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. Three weeks after the fire, Edison managed to deliver the first phonograph. How about you? How will you face failures and disaster? Will you draw away from the Lord in despair? Or will you draw closer to our Lord and tell him, Thank you that I can start anew in you, Lord Jesus. Will you lead as a servant in your brokenness? Are you willing today to stand in the gap for others? Will you encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning in the power of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, This season, this Advent season in many ways is about starting anew. Being reminded of your entrance into our lives and the meaning of that. And Lord, uh, during this season, we ask for greater grace in our lives and in the life of our church as we once again embrace you, seek your empowerment, seek your strength, We will not give up. We will follow you. We will cling to you. We will serve 
one another and our community like you in humility, in love, and in compassion. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, invite you now to stand for our uh, closing hymn.